Hello and hello. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Kicking and Streaming, right on time for St. Valentine's Day. Only me, Bo, here with Cupid's Bo, alone in the studio. But I've got the perfect match for you today. The marriage of two great romantic films to an expert on love itself, L'Amour's very own Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife, renowned relationship therapist and sexual intimacy coach. This will be a departure from our usual programming. Instead of comparing a streaming original with an acclaimed classic, we will be examining two movies through the lens of romance and relationship. Two lauded love stories that take place in New York at wintertime. Both deal with sex, and both are comical, though one is cynical and the other hopeful. Our first film is a classic from one of Hollywood's most legendary directors, Billy Wilder's The Apartment, from 1960. Wilder might be better known for Sunset Boulevard or Some Like It Hot, but The Apartment itself is high on his long list of hits. Although some early reviews of the film took umbrage to its views of sex and sin, the film was a success in the box office and was nominated for 10 Oscars, including wins for Wilder as both director and co-author of the screenplay. The Apartment stars... Jack Lemon as C.C. Buddy Boy Baxter, a cog in the corporate machine, who lends out his apartment as a hideaway for high-level executives to carry out illicit trysts. The story follows Baxter's attempts to grow from milk toast to minch. Shirley MacLaine and Fred McMurray co-star. Moonstruck is from 1987 and features the improbable duo Nicolas Cage and Share. It was written by famed playwright John Patrick Shanley and directed by Norman Jewison, an eclectic filmmaker who we've covered here on a previous episode of Kicking and Streaming. Six Oscars, including a win for Cher as lead actress, Olympia Dukakis as supporting actress, and Shanley as screenwriter. Moonstruck makes critic Roger Ebert's list of greatest ever films, and the larger-than-life story of lunar-driven love is an audience favorite. It follows an Italian family as marriages are strained, paramours picked up, and great questions of romance are quotably considered. Without further ado, here is the conversation Chris and I recently had with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. Call me or Jennifer is Jennifer. fine. It's just easier. Okay. So it's a it's a it's a long name. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, I have a PhD in counseling psychology. I'm a licensed therapist, but I do a lot of coaching. I don't do mental health counseling anymore. I've just decided to shift my focus to instruction and coaching on helping people develop their intimate relationships. So in their marriages or individually, self-development and sexual development is my focus. So, and counseling is a developmental degree. That is to say, it's a degree around normative issues, not psychopathology. So I, my focus is, is more on normative development. Perfect. Okay. And yeah, and, and those links to, of course, to your, with your work in podcasting and the various educational things you put out is, of course, how we've mm -hmm. come across your material and why we were interested in your views on sex and relationship and so forth as they mm. uh, appear in these films, uh, the two films mm -hmm. that we're going to cover. Right. Yeah. A, a lot of times, you, you know, you watch movies about relationships and stuff, and I know it's, as a viewer, you don't want to necessarily be told how to think or how to feel about what's happening, but sometimes it is nice, especially as you're, you know, as you yourself are developing sexually and mentally and stuff, you want to, you want to be able to examine the characters in relation to yourself and ask yourself, like, is this healthy? How similar am I to these characters? What can I do to be more or less like this character or that character? So that's... And what's the ethic that's implicit in the story, right? Like, a, you know, what's the meaning or the idea that the movie creator is communicating through the story exactly mm -hmm. and i think as well just that there's such touchstones for all of us you know popular media yes. on what we think relationships <laughs> ought to look like you know second That's right second only to of course the ones that we see modeled around us but these are such a i mean we're in an age of entertainment. That's right. And that actually leads pretty nicely into the first film we want to talk about, which was uh, The Apartment. 
Billy Wilder's film from uh, 1960 with Jack Lemmon, Shirley MacLaine, and Fred McMurray. Mm -hmm. We watched this for our movie club that we used to run a while back, and it really stuck with me. So I was really, it's one of those movies that I love, but mm -hmm. it's 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 got so many strange mm -hmm. relationships that I was excited to to bring this one. Up. Yeah, but great. Yeah, and actually, you know, with this first question, I'll give a very slight kind of prelude to the to the movie. So. With, with The Apartment, it's a movie about a guy who is essentially lending his apartment out to his superiors at work who are they're using it for trysts and affairs and little sexual misadventures and whatnot. And things get complicated when he finds himself having feelings for a, a woman at the office who his own boss has his sights on and he's using his apartment for that. And so it's, it's a movie about very messy relationships. So mm -hmm. one thing I was wondering actually, uh, Jennifer, as I was watching it and I was, I was excited to kind of get into some of these. So there's, there's a thing people mm -hmm. say nowadays, which is this film could never be made today. You hear it a lot with regard mm -hmm. to, you know, blazing saddles or, you know, some, some movies that are kind of cultural landmarks, but also have things that mm -hmm. wouldn't as likely see it today. Mm -hmm. And it's often said in kind of a lamenting tone, like, ah, darn this social progress. We can't have as much fun with our movies or something. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. You know, this movie, as, as much as I love it, obviously it's not really depicting a whole lot of healthy, positive role models. And so I was wondering, do, do you think a film like this would have a place in today's society as far as whether it, whether something identical to this could be made today or whether it's still relevant? Or I mean, the sexism in it is, is pretty blatant. You know, the kind of stereotypes about, you know, what a female is or should be and what a male is or should be in terms of the power differentials and the and how this story plays out in a way that was culturally more acceptable in 1960 than it would be now but the overarching theme of the film is one of exploitation versus decency and using versus caring about someone and those themes are alive and well. We just do exploitation in more nuanced ways, perhaps now. We do it in different ways that I, I don't think even in our uh, maturation around gender roles, have we necessarily grown out of the capacity or desire to take advantage. For example, the boss and the superiors are taking advantage of the male employee, right, and using their power to extract from him as much as they are from the women around them. And so, you know, this ability to take advantage is one that as society matures, it's going to limit um, or basically create structures that limit one's ability to do that freely. But the human desire to do that will probably be a part of us as long as humanity is on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. I I actually, I really like that you made that comparison to uh, the first time I saw this, I, you know, I saw it as kind of a fun, but dated and kind of interesting movie, but it was the second time around. I, funny enough, I think that this second time was after, you know, the Me Too movement and a lot of accountability was brought to yeah. show business and other, other social areas. And it, it's made me a little mm -hmm. bit more kind of cognizant I, i've been trying harder to notice things more both from myself and other people and that made me notice like you said um they take advantage of uh the main character cc baxter played by jack lemon they take advantage of him mm -hmm. in a way that could be argued very similarly to the way they take advantage of the right. of the women i'm in this bar on 61st street and i got to thinking about you and i figured i'd give you a little buzz joe dovish and administration Oh, yeah, Mr. Dovich, I didn't recognize your voice. That's okay, buddy boy. Now, like I was saying, I'm in this joint on 61st, and uh, I think I got lucky. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Dovich. I'd like to help you fellas out, but it's sort of late, so why don't we uh, make it some other time? Listen, kid, I can't pass this up. She looks like Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> I'm already in bed, and I've taken a sleeping pill, so I'm afraid the answer is no. Look, Baxter. We're making out the monthly efficiency rating, and I'm putting you in the top ten. Now, uh, you don't want to lash yourself up, do you? Of course not, but how can I be efficient in the office if I don't get enough sleep at night? It's only 11, and I just want the place for 45 minutes. What do you say, bud? Huh? Huh? I'm all out of liquor. There's no clean glasses. There's no cheese crackers. No nothing. Let me worry about that. 
Just leave the key under the mat and clear out. Yes, Mr. Dobish. Oh, anything you say, Mr. Dobish. No trouble at all, Mr. Dobish. To me, it seemed almost kind of like a really interesting, stealthy way to get the men of the 60s to perhaps consider things from outside their perspective. Like it was almost like it took a very important message and kind of made it digestible for people who might not otherwise have been receptive because, I mean, that was one. Right. That's right. Or even how uncool it was to be exploitative in 1960 as it is today. So that is the, the central message is that the mensch the decent guy is the one that doesn't take advantage, right? And, you know, that's clear even in the gender roles of that day that decency still prevailed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, what I mean by it prevailed, what I mean is that human beings understood decency and understood the appeal of decency, even if the ways that men and women interacted with each other were different. Yeah. You know, it's funny I, I love I love the film's use of, of the word mensch because he's he has a the main character Baxter mm-hmm. has a neighbor a Jewish doctor. Why don't you grow up, Baxter? Be a mensch. You know what that means? I'm not sure. A mensch, a human being. So you got off easy this time. So you were lucky, <laughs> no, wasn't I? But you're not out of the woods yet, Baxter, because most of them try it again. He actually I thought made for an amazing foil to you know for a lot of the movie we see the corporate world and his bosses and what lecherous creeps a lot of them are and you know there is yes a a lot of the times with especially when talking about older movies people say you know it was a different time you know it was okay back then or something Mm -hmm. but his doctor right right yeah his doctor neighbor made for i thought an interesting mirror to hold up to that of like no here is a decent good man who is expressing sometimes very humorously just disgust with this whole lifestyle that baxter's immersed in yes exactly Absolutely. And, and I, I assume and believe that there were decent and good men who loved their wives and were true to their wives, even in, when they could get away with doing otherwise throughout centuries. Right. <laughs> so what's good is when the structure shifts so women don't have to stay in an abusive marriage or women can vote and own property and things like that. They balance the playing field so it's harder to take advantage without consequence. And that matters. We want a society that structure is structured in a way that it pressures us to bring our better selves because it's in our collective interest to do it. But even without that, there were There were men that loved and would never take advantage or be dishonest with their partner. And even now, when your wife can divorce you or so on, people can still be deeply indecent and cruel, Mm. even if they say they're a feminist. (laughs) Certainly. (laughs) Right? Yeah. (laughs) This actually leads me, Chris, I'm going to just kind of cut in here because I think the, the question flows here. Talking about the models of masculinity in this in this film, which you know, I mean, it's mm. of course it's a film made by uh, primarily by men, and mm. we've got Fred McMurray, who I, d- I don't know how familiar either of you are with him, but he was sort of the Disney dad, yeah, the good dad, yeah, he yeah. was the good dad, and he's taken here and sort yeah. of his, you know, with his very I don't know sort of corporate America looks, and he's put in the role of, I mean. A real villain, mm-hmm. really easy, to, really easy to to hate this guy. They they do it. They do a great job of of making you detest him. Sheldrake, yes. the the top level executive, and so with we've got essentially two pillars of you know two masculine characters here uh, with mm-hmm. Sheldrake by Fred McMurray and then Baxter. I he's working on on becoming a a minch, but I mean he starts out quite or you know milk toast and absolutely yeah and right. so we've got the these two uh, in opposition and i'm wondering what you think of the way that it that this what this film has to say about masculinity and perhaps you know is one character being more quote unquote masculine than the other character and also even though sheldrake is the villain in what ways are we seeing Baxter's mm-hmm. choices as, as quite problematic also? Well, I would say, and including the doctor character, I can't remember his name, but they, they're all versions of masculinity. Um, they're all versions of the way that men do life. 
the difference is the maturity or the decency in it. I would say that Baxter and Sheldrake are two versions of immature masculine. There's the immaturity of I want to dominate, be on top, take advantage, get everything for me. Mm. And then there's the immaturity of like, well, I don't want to stand up or do what I think is right or decent. I want to kind of prove to these immature men, my superiors, that I am cool, that I am acceptable, that I can be in their league. And, you know, he's trying on his hat and he's trying to get the Shirley MacLaine character to to, you know, tell him he's kind of like one of these cool guys and he's got his own office and he's trying to live up to this very immature but often intoxicating view of masculine because they supposedly have all the power and so you see him being beholden to it he's captivated by it he's trying and therefore he's dishonest he can't he can't live up to his integrity can't actually hold his own milk toast is a way of saying it but he's kind of captivated by this immaturity and so they're they're on par even though one looks more powerful than the other um and you know the you see with the prodding a bit of the doctor character and kind of saying what it really is to be a man, you see Baxter stand up to it, like see through it, um, say, I'm not going to be beholden to this fantasy that you, Sheldrake, are going to tell me I'm a man because you don't know anything about being one, not a not a good man. Hmm. And so he he gets himself out of the validation dependency, to use language I use a lot, of his boss and earns his freedom, earns his integrity, earns his trustworthiness uh, in his own mind, but also, of course, in the Shirley MacLaine character. I, I think we should mm-hmm. just say, because we brought him up several times, the character is Dr. Dreyfus, ah. played by mm. Jack Crucian, who, who was nominated mm. for uh, an Oscar for the role. No. Yeah. Wow. Was he really for the uh, apartment? That's that's amazing. Yeah, for the apartment. Yeah, that's what he's what he's most what he's most known for. I, I think it's interesting mm-hmm. on this because I think Billy Wilder, the director, as well as uh, I. L. A. Diamond, who co-wrote the screenplay with him and wrote several of his films, he has quite a. I mean, he's cynical, but he has a fairly incisive view of America in a lot of his films, and together they do. And mm. I think they do a fair job of showing as well really the that it's skin deep it's empty what what he's chasing after what baxter is chasing after and what he's getting you know he moves from that office and that you get a bit of a view of like the background and he's got his own chair now and then you turn and see that he's just facing you know all these other drones that he's moved up (laughs) through and finally gets up there and you know a key to the corporate washroom and everything i mean it's it's also Empty. empty yeah and contrasts yeah. i think very much the the warmth that you see in the apartment right next to him again with uh yeah. doctor and mrs true. dreyfus yeah right very true yeah yeah i, re- I really liked that that contrast because that was something that um i thought dr Dr. Dre- yeah like dr dreyfus made for a fantastic foil both to baxter and to sheldrake mm-hmm I, I'm I'm so glad he got an Oscar for that because I he's probably my favorite character in the movie just because he's mm. got such. Mm-hmm. I I think again talking about the different forms of masculinity he has such a sternness and a hardness to him he's not afraid to you know like I I don't know how medical practices were back then but when he's giving smacks as a way to like try and help snap somebody out of taking too many pills I'm like was this normal <laughs> this is wild. <laughs> But, you know, <laughs> he, he had kind of a, a, a harshness to him, but there was always this very, very professional and affectionate air to it. Even when he's talking to Baxter, you can hear like disdain and love in his voice at the same time of yeah. seems to genuinely care for him. And so it did seem like like Dr. Dreyfus was sort of the, you know, kind of the, the model character of the film. He was sort of the 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 pivot point and the anchor around which the rest of the chaos could spin, because I think without a character like him. Mm-hmm. I might have started to feel a little bit lost in the weeds of like, you know, because you see some films where it depicts so much, you know, bad or odd behavior. Dark. Yeah, darkness that mm-hmm. you, you start mm-hmm. to wonder, wait, does the filmmaker want me to think this is normal? Is this normal? Like, right. And so he was. Yeah, I agree with that. that that's a great point. Yeah, he's a. He was a, a light. And, and, you know, at first, it's just so disgusting. The exploitativeness, these, you know, men that are taking advantage of like hapless women who are 
acting like complete airheads, you know, and buying in, you know, and, you know, the, and Dreyfus, Dr. Dreyfus, you, you see part of his ability to be affectionate and stern is that he just doesn't buy into it. He knows another life. He knows a way to live. His wife likes him for good reason. She's trying to coach Shirley MacLaine's character like, you can have better than this. Like, why? Why put yourself through this? Uh, and so it's like they understand where where it really is to live. And, and so the, it's a very helpful counterpoint. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think what you've just said there is key because it, it isn't that he's, Dr. Dreyfus doesn't, he's not judgmental, I think, exactly as you said, because he just doesn't buy into it. The allure isn't right. there for him. He sees th right. that there's something else to life. And so he's not, he, he's not bitter or right. envious at all. Yeah. Exactly. This is something like, Bo always makes fun of me because I always find some awkward way to shoehorn this into conversation, but I've become a big fan of Taoism lately uh, as just a life philosophy mm. and <laughs> Bo smirking over there. Mm. Um, but that's something that <laughs> I genuinely like watching it. I thought Dr. Dreyfus was the sage, you know, he was this, this person who mm -hmm. uh, knows who he is and he's the only character in the film who isn't striving. You know, he's the only character who isn't trying to get more than what he has. And it's, it's like you say, it's like he knows yep. his life. He knows his place in the world. And because of that, he's this rock. And at the same time, he's, you know, he's flexible. He's, he's able to, I mean, he was kind enough to save Shirley MacLaine's character in the midst of an overdose without asking for any money, you know, saying it was on the house and everything. So it's right. that sort of the firmness and the resoluteness, right. but also the flexibility. And it's, yes. it's this character that you kind of yeah. aspire to be. All markers of maturity. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yes. And not not mm -hmm. to dive too deeply into this, but perhaps worth mentioning that he, that Billy Wilder himself is a Jewish refugee. Uh, 1960s, mm. of course, aren't free of uh, anti-Semitism. And, you know, here at the heart of the mm. film, we have perhaps the most yeah. mature characters are uh, the Jewish couple next door. That's right. Who seem like they could have been refugees because mm. of her, like, Romanian accent and, mm. you know, that kind of... Uh, I'm saying Romanian. It just seemed Romanian to me. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it is or not, but you know, but yeah, like a lot of that kind of cultural piece that they are the strong ones, and often the strong people in life have gone through great difficulty because they they start to sort out what actually matters. You know, too much privilege, too much kind of empty power like that can really corrupt. Mm, that's a that's a fantastic point. Yeah, it's it shapes your perspective. A mm -hmm. life without hardships can can lead to a life without empathy. You could even say like mm -hmm. and. Mm -hmm. Speaking of, of empathy a bit, this is going back just a tad um, to something we touched on briefly, which was uh, that sense of uh, Baxter's bosses, especially Sheldrake, you know, abusing him and his apartment for their own sort of selfish needs. And I kept thinking, you know, it's it's something I love when I see it in modern films and older films where you find yourself taking hold of a message without the film telling you outright, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, they tricked me into, mm, yeah. into a whole new way of thinking about things. A, a thought that I had that I actually wrote down as I was watching was at the very beginning when Sheldrake has that kind of uncomfortable moment talking, when Baxter and Sheldrake are talking and Sheldrake is sort of slowly kind of implying that he knows what his apartment is for and that he would like a key. Well, that's very kind of you, but I'm not feeling well. I say I've got this cold. I'm going to go right home. Baxter, you're not reading me. I told you I have plans. Uh, so do I. I'm going to take four aspirin, get into bed, so you might as well give the tickets to somebody else. Look, Baxter, I'm not just giving these tickets. I want to swap them. Swap for what? It also says here that you are alert, astute, and uh, quite imaginative. Oh. That's good thinking, Baxter. There's going to be a shift in personnel around here next month. As far as I'm concerned, you are executive material. I am. Now put down the key. And put down the address. And Baxter is, whether, mm -hmm. you know, it seems authentic. I love Jack Lemmon's acting style because he's almost like vaudevillian in the way he projects and sort of like really puts a lot of emotion into his into his lines. But he seems, mm. you know, oblivious. He seems to not understand what's happening. And as it slowly dawns on him, you almost see his heart kind of sink a little bit because this what right. he was hoping to be professional turned out not to be. And as it's going on, I had the thought of in this moment when Sheldrake is is 
you know, propositioning Baxter, would a yes would a yes answer and a no answer be equally viable to him? Because if they aren't, it's a power mm-hmm. imbalance. And it's it's mm-hmm. when you're highly incentivized to say yes, often through, you know, coercion or threats. And in this case, you know, it's like it's his boss, you know. I mean he even says right, his job's on the Yeah, line. exactly. And he even says at one point uh, a mindset that in depending on how you look at it, it could be a mindset that still exists today when he says, um, you know, you give one guy your key, you got to give it to the rest of them too. You know, when he's talking about his apartment, it's like he feels the, 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 the environment and the world of his office has shaped him to have an expectation regarding his own self-worth. And uh, yeah, that mm. power imbalance. Mm-hmm. I was, I was super aware of it as I was watching, just noting all the moments where, people kind of like you talked about how there's this this power shift and how a lot of that immature masculinity of wanting to possess and have power over other people men women i guess it in the end it all comes down to that exertion of power for people like sheldrake right exactly so that's what i would talk about um as immature masculine is you you have power over other people like really strong men or strong people don't have to dominate another person to be strong they can just be have integrity right but yeah it's i I saw in in jack lemon's character lost his name already (laughs) you know you see him kind of baxter thank you you see him like he assumes and we all assume as we're watching that sheldrake is going to be the good dad right he's got that face i mean that's just what i immediately think oh oh oh, he's the good boss and he's gonna help him out of this bind where all these people all of the superiors to him are taking from him so he's going to help him out and then it turns out no he's he's the same he's cut from the same cloth and this is the whole system i'm in and so baxter is recognizes like i don't have any options here really except to lose my job so absolutely he feels like in order to be safe or to get his own needs met he's going to submit to this and of course that's sort of in my view the definition of a bad leader is it pushes you to betray yourself in order to belong or in order to get the goods that are available there is that you have to you know work for the few at the top but against your own integrity and Mm -hmm. so he recognizes he's in that system and so for a while he imagines well better to go along and get something than to stand up to it and have nothing but obviously evolves and grows to a point of I'd much rather take nothing and walk away from this whole system. Yeah. I think we see with Baxter as well that, uh, which is often the case, I think, for uh, people who develop the sort of, I don't know, uh, neurotic or, well, or or at least, you know, kind of milquetoast, like we said, personality that he does, is that he feels very powerless. I mean, he feels always that he is the victim of of his passions of other people of the way that the corporate system works of the way that relationships work i think we until right up until the end he just feels that he's sort of forced to go along with it you know he'll complain he'll be Mm -hmm. passive aggressive he'll put up notes he'll make a feeble attempt to shut things down but in the end, mm-hmm. he's got to go along with it because everyone has to go along with it because that's the way he sees the world. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting, actually, along those mm-hmm. same lines. Uh, one thing I noticed and wondered myself several times, and I say this as a, uh, I'm not even going to say formerly spineless person because I still get taken advantage of plenty of times in my own life. Just just <laughs> sheer eagerness to please. Mm-hmm. But uh, yes. even, again, it's one of those movies that like, as I'm talking to the characters in the movie, I'm realizing, oh, shoot, they're me. Dang it. Because I'm sitting here thinking, like, why is he yeah. like, why is he so there's moments? I mean, even under threat of battery and assault from the brother-in-law of uh, of. Uh, oh, gosh, I need to stop calling her Shirley MacLaine's character. Yeah. Fran, even under threat of violence, he still covers for his. I mean, it was, you know, half his terrible boss and mm-hmm. half, I guess, maybe what he saw as kind of protecting Fran's dignity as well a mm-hmm. bit. But uh, I just kept thinking, you know, why, you know, why go to all this effort? And I think a lot of it is because kind of like we've said, 
this whole time in the film, he never seemed to indicate that he thought he had a choice. And so that's why that final moment, I think, is right. so beautiful when he he flicks his do- his he flicks Sheldrake the key and you're thinking, oh, no, the cycle continues. And then you find out it's, you know, different key. And and then it's that right. that moment of clarity, like fresh spring water cleaning something off of kind of this. This is the first choice he's made in the film. This is the first time he's. That's right. And in doing it, he becomes a real man. I mean, do you know what I yeah. mean? Like in 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 active integrity, mm. he becomes true to himself. He finds his strength where he keeps thinking it's going to be through capitulating to the the ones that have the power, and you know he earns trustworthiness in the eyes of Fran. So it's like he finds out that's the path. It's not the dishonest capitulation to power that turns you into a man. Yeah. And mm-hmm. another to, to, to plug Taoism one last time for this movie, I guess there, <laughs> I, I really liked <laughs> the fact that even upon, even after sticking it to his boss, Sheldrake, I think in most rom-coms or, or romantic dramas or something after that moment, the, the, the main character runs to the airport to stop her from leaving or something, you know, like, Hey, I'm, I did the right thing. Do you love me now? You know, but, uh, in in this yep. case, he he acted in a solitary fashion, and he he did what was right because he knew it was right, and he he didn't need validation, he yep. didn't need approval, he didn't need Fran to to yep. know what he did, and so I, I loved that. Right. I loved the fact that he was completely ready to move away and start a new life, and you know take up roots and everything, and. Yep. That was yeah a, right. a real sign of he's stepping away from a dependency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dependent. He's stepping away from a dependency on others telling him he's good. Mm. He's just being good, and also Fran recognizes it. Right. Sorry, I took so long on the phone, but we're all set. All set for what? I rented a car to be here at one o'clock. We're driving down to Atlantic City. Atlantic City. Oh, I know it's a drag, but you can't find a hotel room in town not on New Year's Eve. Ring out the old year, ring in the new. Ring-a-ding-ding. I didn't plan it this way, Fran. Actually, it's all Baxter's fault. Baxter? Hey, he wouldn't give me the key to the apartment. He wouldn't? No, he just walked out on me. Quit. Threw that big fat job right in my face. The nerve. Yeah, little punk. After all I did for him, said I couldn't bring anybody to the apartment, especially not Miss Kubelik. <laughs> What's he got against you anyway? I guess that's the way it crumbles, cookie-wise. What are you talking about? Like, wait, he wouldn't give you the key, right? And just, you, you, it's like in a moment, the world changes for her. There's a different reality, a different possibility, because she's trying to find her way in a world in which everyone takes advantage, and she's trying to, you know, she also worships it too much. She also imagines, this is where I'll find my happiness is when someone like Sheldrake will finally love me. Mm-hmm. And she recognizes it's nothing. It's empty. Yeah. Because she has her moments as well. I mean, she, the whole time, you know, she has her woe is me. I've been put in like this bad Mm, system, the bad relationship, Mm -hmm. which she also has to break out of. Because, yeah, you you have that moment when she's in uh, in Baxter's apartment recovering. I believe she's recovering from the overdose at that point when she says, you know, why can't I fall for a nice guy like you? Which is, you know, that that's another mm. thing today that you get plenty of guys who are like, why can't she fall for a nice guy like me? You know, you get that inverse happening a lot with with certain communities online and, and just with guys in general, I think. Yes. And it's so the mere fact that that Baxter was able to go through this whole arc without having that moment of like, ah, man, why can't, like, I'm nice. Why can't she like me? It was when it all wrapped up in the end, it was all, it was all for him. And then when she saw that it became a matter of like, she knew he was nice when she said that, why can't I fall for a nice guy like you? But it, the moment that she saw that he didn't give the key, it transcended being a nice guy and a mensch. Like he, yeah, that's exactly right. Because nice guys aren't that trustworthy either. Do you know? I mean, like, while I'd rather spend my life with a Baxter character than uh, a Sheldrake character, uh, that in his need and dependency for approval, he's also spineless, dishonest. You know, he, he's also not really capable mm-hmm. yet yeah. of loyalty. And so 
that's partly why sometimes women don't go for nice guys. That's not always the reason. But there's also more immaturity there than people want to acknowledge often. Mm -hmm. But Baxter moves from immaturity into the mensch, a kind person, not a guy who just is always trying to please and hoping someone will tell him he's enough. Yeah, I love that. I love that take on it. Well, that I, I feel I feel very edified right now. This, this was I, I, I like the apartment Great. even more now. <laughs> I mean, should we should we say anything in conclusion yeah. or should we move on to Moonstruck or any, any closing thoughts from any of us on? Let's move on because I bet you there will be parallels or yeah. I, mean, I don't know for sure, but I am imagine there will be. Yeah, yeah. for yeah. sure. Yeah, I think we can can move into into Moonstruck here. So, yeah, we're jumping to to 1987. Mm hmm. Right. Uh, this is another. This is a film that also gets some Oscar wins for for writing and so on. Is also successful. Also acclaimed. Much, much less cynical. Maybe just as messy in some ways, but much less cynical. Much more hopeful than than Wilder's mm-hmm. film. Done by Norman Jewison, who Chris directed uh, in the Heat of the Night, which we've covered on a previous episode. Oh, did he really? That's ah, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So this story, looking at another another New York story, but uh, here with uh, an Italian family, a lot of the messiness of love and 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 fate and and the moon. <laughs> <laughs> I loved this film. I actually love both of them, but uh, right. it's been about four weeks since I watched it, so hopefully I'll remember <laughs> some of that. But I, I really really enjoyed it. Yeah, <laughs> it has a very slice of life feeling that. Like you know, I've I've never lived in Jersey. I've never li- lived in a, a pre- predominantly Italian American community. But you get this the movie the way the dialogue is and the way the characters are. It draws you in so quick that it feels like you're with family within 15 minutes of the movie starting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it's very it's great, very comfort foodie. That's a uh, well. Mm-hmm. To uh, if I is it okay if I lead with the first question, Bo? Do you mind if I? Uh... All right. So this is one I'm. I'm of two minds when it comes to, I guess, the themes and the story in this movie. I kind of hold, I guess, two contradictory opinions at once about it, which is I, I love the the simultaneously charming and very disarming and kind of uh, very pleasant way that it views arguably very complicated relationship dynamics. And at the same time, Again, I, I feel like I'm a hypocrite for saying this because I love it when movies don't tell you what to think or how to feel. But sometimes when a movie gets into sort of ethically murky territory, I'm like, uh, it doesn't say this is okay, does it? Or is it okay? You know, because um, I mean, the whole, right. even the title, Moonstruck. It uh, funny enough, th- this is a movie that I there's a movie that I love, but I don't think Bo loved very much from the Coen Brothers called Hail Caesar that came out a few years back. And mm-hmm. there's a bit in the movie where mm-hmm. they're filming they're filming an old western, and some old prospector is getting mad because this lady says that she caught him stealing her pie, and he says, "It's not my fault you caught me. It's that crazy lazy moon. If it wasn't shining, you wouldn't have seen me take it." And he, you know, he starts to sing a song about the moon, and it's just this silly thing. But the, blaming the moon, you know, blaming the forces of nature for yeah. for childish or silly or you know, or, or stupid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So it's you know, I think a lot of the movie feels like it depicts love and sexuality as kind of a force of nature, which arguably it is. You know, of there are there are elements mm-hmm. of it that may be beyond our control at times. Of you know, it's like. There's that moment where he says, you know, like they, it was, it was the power of the moon made me do it. You know, it was, I guess the big question, this is kind of the, the everything question for me of the movie is like, you know, what is this movie really saying about relationships and about love and sexuality? Because we get, you know, Loretta and Ronnie, um, or Donnie, Ronnie, Donnie, I think Ronnie, Johnny, Johnny. I knew it was an Johnny. Oh no, it's Ronnie, isn't it? Yeah, I, uh, I don't know which one you're talking about. Oh, right, Nicolas Cage. 
Nicholas Cage's uh, character. Yeah. That's Nicholas Cage's character is Ronnie with an R. Ronnie. His brother is Johnny mm. with a J. That's right. Okay. <laughs> Very creative name <laughs> and family. Yeah. That's another <laughs> cultural mainstay probably. But uh, yeah, so her relationship with Ronnie, it's, you know, all of their little interactions are so adorable and wholesome to me. Like them going to the opera together, him saying like, I, you know, I'll agree if you let me take you to the opera. Now, wait a minute, honey. Listen. All right. I won't come to the wedding provided one thing. What? That you come with me tonight to the opera. What are you talking about? I love two things. I love you and, and I love the opera. Now, if I can have the two things that I love together for one night, I would be satisfied to give up. Oh, to give up the rest of my life. All right, all right. All right. All right! Meet me at the mat. All right, all right. Where's the mat? Well, you, you got it. And it's this very, you know, there's like accordion music that plays, and it just feels very romantic and fun and light. But also, it's like she is... She is cheating on her fiancé with his brother, which sounds very torrid and... and <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So yeah, it's and you know, like the plot of an opera. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so it's like you get that, and then you get, of course, Loretta's right. father is cheating on her mother, and you know that that resolves in kind of a quirky and interesting way at the end as well. And Loretta's mother is similarly tempted to have a little tryst with the dad from Frasier. I can never remember his name, <laughs> but I love him. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, so there's obviously the idea of infidelity kind of weaves itself through the fabric of of the story. And I wonder if there's meant to be a healthy takeaway from this or if it's more just kind of a don't sweat the ethics and just have fun while you watch kind of thing. Like, do, do you feel there were positive things to yeah. take from it? Uh, yes, I do. I mean... I agree with you. I'm the worst person to watch movies with because most people just want to have a nice time. And I'm like that, the meaning, what they're teaching just drives me crazy. Like I really, <laughs> I tend to get worked up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, a little bit because, you know, I get, I get worked up if there's sort of unhealthy ethics that mm. get taught and spun as this positive yeah, thing. Yeah, it's normalizing. And, and this movie was definitely, definitely walking that line. I think it bothered my husband. A little more than I did. I don't know why, but the cultural stuff was just so funny. And of course, all of it gets resolved in a very fun and and acceptable way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I agree with you. I mean, there is no way that this would actually work out well if this were to actually happen, right? There's just no possible way. So I would say don't try this at home. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That said, I do think it's pointing to something that's true, which is that, you know, there is something, I mean, I'm going to walk a line here a little bit because I talk a lot in my courses and my podcast about the fact that on some level, love is a choice and desire on some level is a choice. Do you choose this person? Are you going to bring your best to that person? Are you going to bring your sexuality and create something with them? And it's not just going to, feelings are not going to lead you into this reality. Okay. And I stand by that 100%. That said, I don't know that you can just choose anyone, right? Or that just anyone is going to have that glue of Eros love that's at the core of a solid marriage Hmm. or a solid, passionate sexual relationship. What you see in the movie is that, what's Cher's character's name? Do you remember? Loretta. Loretta. Okay, so, so Loretta is marrying Johnny because he's just a safe choice. Her mother says, are you in love with him? She's like, no. And she's like, okay, good. (laughs) Right. You're not going to, you can just make the practical choice. And you, and it's not clear that Johnny's in love with her either. They're there. Johnny is like too entangled and enmeshed with his mother. And he's just doing kind of what he should do. And they're both doing something that is practical. Yeah. But there is no spark or aliveness in the partnership. And I think that's dangerous. I work with people who've done this, Mm. that they think he's a good person. I should marry him. I, maybe the attraction will come later. And then they lock themselves into something in which they don't desire and never have. Right. And that's like deeply unkind to do that to someone. (laughs) 
right? To marry someone that you're not attracted to, right? Now, there's a plenty of people that feel lots of attraction in dating and then they get married and it goes away. That's a different issue. Mm. That's not that you made the wrong choice. That's about your difficulty with intimacy and, and really creating a partnership with someone. But the foundational spark was there. And I think what this movie is showing is that Donnie, no, Ronnie, sorry, <laughs> Ronnie, like she, it wakes her up. I mean, she turns into a beautiful woman. She goes to the opera in which she's just going to fulfill what he asks, right? But of course she goes out, gets a new outfit, gets her hair done. She's like stunning. She, she becomes alive. She becomes the goddess, a feminine goddess, right? In his presence. Mm. And there's something to that, right? Because so much of joy in life and you know, I was listening to um, C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, this last weekend, and he talks about Eros love. And he says, like, you go into this, not if someone were to say to you, you're not going to be happy with this person. First of all, you wouldn't believe them. But even if you did believe them, you'd say, I don't care. I just want to be with them. <laughs> okay. And that's the kind of the glue of Eros love. Like, I want to be with you, struggle with you. You know, the sex is a part of it, but it's not just about the biological dive, drive to reproduce. Okay, It's about this. I want to be with you. Right. I want to struggle with you. And that's at the core of that Eros energy. And part of what, you know, Eros is not just about eroticism. Eros is this life force, as a lot of philosophers talk about. It's the thing that makes you feel alive. Mm. I can remember falling in love with my husband and I'm like, the sky is bluer. Everything is funny. You know, I'm like walking around my apartment just laughing because I'm remembering things we talked about the nice <laughs> night before. Mm -hmm. And my roommate's like, you're weird. Like, what is your problem? <laughs> and I'm like high on dopamine because I'm just like, because I, you know, and the whole world seems full of hope and possibility. Yeah. And that's what Eros is. And it matters. I mean, it's not everything. You can't just stop with that. But it is, it is a fundamental part of partnering and romance and joy in life. I, I love that, honestly, because that's that, that's a, I think that's the, the kind of feeling I came away with, but couldn't find the way to put it into words, I don't think, because it was that that feeling of being around Ronnie made her come to life until that moment. She was yes. al almost kind of like the personality equivalent of grayscale, like she was kind of just sort of kind of coasting through. And you know, like, I love that line from Mother, do you love him? No, that's great. You know, it's very dispassionate. <laughs> and uh I, yeah. I I love the idea that no spark lasts forever without you tending to it. You know, it's like you can't just you yeah. can't jump into a relationship based on passion and just expect that first moment of passion to carry you for the rest of your life. And at the same time, it's probably, right. you know, I mean, obviously, in this case, she was already engaged when she met Ronnie. But ideally, you meet a Ronnie before you've you're engaged to a Johnny <laughs> where that's right. you uh, are. Right. It's it, finding somebody who. It's like expecting that feeling, expecting that spark to come later when it's not there at the start is probably ill-advised of thinking like, well, maybe if I, you know, maybe if I help them fix this or this habit, or maybe if we do better about this, maybe then I'll feel something. So it's like, it's, it's foolish right. to expect it to stay forever, but it's also foolish to expect it to manifest from nowhere. So it's, it takes work, but it also has to be That's present. right. That's right. And I do, in some of the work, some of the couples I've worked with, I'm convinced that some people choose the person they don't have the spark with on purpose, just like Loretta was doing. And like her mom is saying, oh, good. Mm. You know, basically, you can't have your heart broken if your heart's not in it. You know <laughs> what I mean? You, it, and a lot of us are afraid to have our heart in it. And so there was some terrible research out there that said, I don't know, 80% of men will partner with a person they're a little bit less attracted to, meaning they'll choose a slightly safer option than the one that they really, really wanted. And, um, you know, I don't remember where that research was. I just remember reading it and thinking, oh, that's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because no one wants to think that they're that person. You know? right. but, uh, but I think that, uh, <laughs> but I think that because we can feel the vulnerability of somebody really turning us upside down, right, that we can often want to step back from it or choose the person that basically opens us up less, perhaps. Yeah, not the because I mean the, the the movie is is clear. I mean this is Norman Jewison who who also made you know uh, Fiddler on the Roof right, which is about an arranged uh, marriage and there's the whole yeah. you know do you love me? They're love asking me. the question yeah, right. decades right. in. But yeah. this film, I think, right from the beginning, they show. I mean, they have a scene right at the start where she's at the florist's 
she and you see both sides of what she's trying to be and that deeper side of her where she says, no, the, why, who's the person buying the roses? That's ridiculous. They're going to get thrown away. It's a lot of money to spend on something that's going in the garbage can. And he right. says, oh, and people can't be like you. And she says, what are you talking about? I love roses. And he gives her one and you can see her just sort of uh, fawning over it. And then, mm-hmm. but yeah, the, the Nicolas Cage character uh, of, of Ronnie, he's... I mean, the, the movie is very clear that he is the animal. He is passion personified. I mean, it's a bizarre performance, <laughs> even as Nicolas Cage performances go. You know, he's, I mean, he's, there's, yeah, there's not logic. All his, they make very clear that all of his logic is, is, I mean, it's like pure Eros. He's, he's yeah. upset because even the, his anger, it doesn't make any sense. Do you know about me? Mm-mm. Okay. Nothing is anybody's fault. But things happen. Look. This wood is fake. Five years ago, I was engaged to be married, and, uh, and Johnny came in here, and he ordered bread for me. And I said, oh, okay, some bread. <laughs> and, and I put my hand in the slicer, and it got caught because I wasn't paying attention. The slicer chewed off my hand. <laughs> it's funny, because when my fiance found out about it, but she found out that I'd been maimed. She left me for another man. That's the bad blood between you and Johnny? Yes, that's it. Yeah, but I, that's not Johnny's fault. I don't care! I ain't no freaking monument to justice! I lost my hand! I lost my bride! Johnny has his hand! Johnny has his bride! You want me to take my heartbreak, put it away, and forget? It's all about... <laughs> Uh, passion and living and he's following directly with almost <laughs> with very uh, scant logic right. behind it again a, right. a don't a don't try don't this try at, home, at home sort of yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i love that um, absolutely but, so he, they're playing out archetypes right, right? It, yes exactly yes. yeah and and almost mm-hmm. a sort of an almost a sort of a grecian way you know it's it's opera it's yes. passion it's huge that's uh, right i i wonder if we could tilt to the other relationship quickly mm. um, between Loretta's parents, right? Mm-hmm. And there we see someone wrestling with infidelity and an affair. And and there's an interesting idea of, she, she knows that her husband, uh, I, f- I forget her name, it's Olivia, Olympia Dukakis, she won the Oscar. Um, it's her mm. character, the mother. And she mm. sees that that her that her husband Cosmo is having an affair, and mm-hmm. she is going around asking various men why why is this happening? Why do men need more than one woman? What's what's what are they even doing? And and she has her theory that it's their fear that is driving it. But she has a moment where she doesn't have an affair because she says that she knows who she is. Mm-hmm. And well, I, I won't uh, repeat too too much of the movie i'll just maybe turn it over to you jennifer to say what maybe you think is being displayed in this relationship and the way that she is is handling it and what's happening in this in this marriage where uh we see that there is still love but there is also mm-hmm. infidelity in the in these later yeah. years again whether or not this is actually what how this would go is different than what i think it's sort of playing out or showing as a truth of life Hmm. which is she's yeah she's trying to make sense of it should i take this personally basically uh why who is this man that i'm married to and why is he doing it and you know going back to the idea of eros is the force of life like it's this aliveness the spark the thing that it's the antidepressant of life is eros energy right as opposed to thanatos which is kind of giving up turning in and and a lot of times it is true that when someone loses a parent, uh, you know, when there is a death, they're more vulnerable to an affair, male or female. It's because in time or another time is when you feel like a part of yourself has died in a marriage because you can't bring or you won't bring your whole self to that marriage. Then sometimes an affair partner is an attempt to find a part of yourself again to, to cite a a um, Esther Perel idea, but it's also an antidote to death, right? It's like this kind of like wanting the spark, the aliveness, the youthfulness again, that you haven't been able to cultivate in your marriage or you haven't been willing to. I talk about this a lot in my courses of what does it mean? Like the spark is there, but how do you, how do you foster it? 
how do you keep the marriage alive? Because happy people, people that are happily married, they they feel that they can expand and grow and evolve within the context of the commitment, that the commitment doesn't snuff the light out of them. But sometimes people partner in a way where they are actually afraid to be fully alive. They cut out big parts of themselves to keep the marriage stable or safe or underexposed. But then it becomes this, there, there's no Eros energy in it. And then they go try to look for it elsewhere. Mm. And I think her line is really, really on point, which is, I don't need to do that. <sighs> Temperature's dropping. I guess you can't invite me in. No. People no, I think the house is empty. I can't invite you in because I'm married. Because I know who I am. Shiver. I'm a little cold. <laughs> You're a little boy, and you like to be bad. I could go to my apartment. You can see how the other half lives. I'm too old for you. I'm too old for me. That's my predicament. I... Yes, there's validation for me, sexual validation for me outside, but I don't need it. I know who I am. I know what I'm about. And, you know, she can almost forgive the husband in a sense for the immaturity he's grappling with or the, the life question he's grappling with without being too punitive. Doesn't mean she likes it, but she's the character is in a sense tolerant, kind of in the same Dreyfus character way. Like she sees above it. She understands the immaturity mm. in it. I love that. That actually I feel like that ties really well into her line when she's speaking with Loretta when again, it's it's my favorite line in the whole movie and it's including the follow-up line at the end of the film when she asks her, "Do you love him?" No, mom, I don't. And she says, oh, that's good. Because if they, if you love them, they hurt you because they know they can. They, they drive you crazy because they know they can. Mm. And you mm. get the impression, I think, I guess one of like the unspoken questions that kind of permeates through the movie is, does Loretta's mother love her father? Because she's talking about when you love somebody, they can hurt you. And then over the course of the rest of the film, we see her being kind of, you know, sort of... Uh, uh, What's the right word? Kind of uh, detached, yeah, neutral. neutral. Yeah. But but then yeah. we see her asking yeah. the questions, you know, why do men cheat? Why do men need more than one woman? And at the end, when she says, I want you to stop seeing her. And then again, uh, earlier when she says, I know who I am, it's sort of she know it's like she knows who she is relative to the man she married. And it's. It's that real mm. the realization. It's it's almost less a realization on her part and more a realization on our part as the audience, which is that we see that she Loretta's mother has the same passion that Loretta has for Ronnie. It's just been kind of you know the years have sort of dulled the edge a little bit, and it's that confrontation yeah. of um, yeah, her trying the the mere fact that she's curious about why her husband would cheat is sort of showing that. She is invested in this relationship. She is invested in this marriage and in her husband. And, and then, of, of right. course, at the very end. I see her like trying to. Oh, I'm oh sorry. Finish. Sorry. Yeah just, yeah. yeah. just at the end when she says. Do you love him, Loretta? Ma, I love him awful. Oh, God, that's too bad. She loves me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, I see her as like, in a sense, trying to protect her daughter from the exposure that she felt in loving Cosmo. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, it's kind of the, like, yeah, like, you, you see that, that passion inside of her that I think it comes out, especially when she spends that little evening with the dad from Frasier. <laughs> I should just look him up. But uh, mm -hmm. when they have like a very delightful and fun interaction, but yeah, again, just like Dr. Dreyfus, like she's she she is a she's a monument, you know, she stands tall above a lot of the other craziness. But that character is is John John Mahoney is the actor. And that <sighs> character, of course, is sort of the antithesis again, because he is even admitting that he's basically just chasing validation. He even knows mm. that it's not going you know, he's on a, a, a hedonistic treadmill. Yeah. He knows that it's not going to, to last. He's just going one after the other for the for the right. rush of of feeling like he's somebody for feeling alive for a bit before it wears out and then he right. moves to the next right mm -hmm. right hard way to live 
Uh, one thing that I I loved is, you know, as the film reaches its conclusion, all of these little affairs and things tie themselves up in a way, kind of like you said, is that if this happened in real life, there's no way this would resolve anywhere near as amicably as it does. Because you get the moment where uh, Rose, I looked her up, Rose is the name of Olympia Dukakis's character, Loretta's mother. So mm-hmm. Rose says, I want you I want mm-hmm. you to stop seeing her. And then the husband sort of stands up and slam, he pounds the table for a second. And then he just sort of, okay. And then he just sits back down again and kind of, <laughs> it's all yeah. it took to bring him back into the fold. Right. And then, uh, and then of, of right. course, you know, Johnny coming back, I can't, I can't marry you because of my mother. And then you get this whole hilarious sort of breakdown, which, yeah, it's awesome. uh, frankly, the fact that you get such a silly feel good ending after such a messy batch of relationships is for, for me as a movie watcher, it's, it's remarkable. Writing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yeah. Probably another of my favorite lines in the whole movie is just at the very end when they're all sort of like, all right, let's celebrate. I'm going to marry Ronnie. This is great. And then the grandpa is sort of crying in the corner and they say, grandpa, you know, it's it's okay. Are you you all right? He says, I'm just so confused. He's just like sputtering through tears (laughs) because he's had so little to do with this story. Yeah. I think it's hilarious how Loretta too, though. So like, it's like tremendous that. Uh, Johnny is saying I can't marry you yeah. like my mother's still alive and then she's like wait what you yeah. know <laughs> and what I love about that is that the invalidation even if you're not in love with that person you know it sucks when somebody's like I don't want you <laughs> and so of course her ego gets punctured and she's like trying to like defend it which is really hilarious yeah. um, but uh, yeah oh <laughs> some lighthearted hypocrisy flying around in the final yes. <laughs> the final five minutes Exactly. And, and maybe just uh, considering uh, what you do and your expertise, I really wanted to get this question in, which is mm. the idea that both of these both of these films treat a lot on on sex and sexual relationships. Mm-hmm. But I, in both of them, in the first, because of, of uh, production code at the time, which was just breaking down, mm-hmm. um, and in the second, for whatever mix of preferences and so forth, there isn't a, a, um, any real explicit depiction of sex, mm-hmm. and or even nudity or anything like that. And whether that, whether you think that that is more or less effective, or whether you see that as inherently regardless of the subject matter more or less effective or anything treating along that sort of unfair question Mm. well i don't think it's an unfair question i I think that i often feel not always that explicit sexuality is is added because there's people that want to see the explicit sexuality but not because it actually offers a lot to the storyline and I don't mean, I would never say like unequivocally, it never adds anything because there probably are films in which it does. Um, if there's something specific to the film, I can't remember the name of the film. Uh, it doesn't matter. But I just remember one where it's actually quite nuanced, but her husband had had an affair. She'd found a, a piece of hair on his jacket. And then she's trying to open back up to him. And in the middle of sex, you know, it's actually quite dark, but she says, oh, there was a piece of hair in my mouth or there's a bit of hair in my mouth. And then everything falls apart because of the kind of, it comes back up. And, mm. you know, it was, it was valuable. It needed to be there. You know, you had to understand like the difficulty of reconnection. So I wouldn't say that I know that it should never be in there, but oftentimes I feel like they're doing it to kind of pull in a large spectrum of people mm-hmm. <laughs> or they're doing it to kind of keep it, you know, titillating for people. Mm. And I never like it when I feel like that's the reason. <laughs> It just feels sort of like you're being taken advantage of or something. I don't yeah, know. I feel I, I get the same way. I talked to my wife about this of like, especially, you know, some, so, you know, there are certain TV shows that are like massive critical hits like Game of Thrones and stuff that the, the story and the characters mm-hmm. you can really enjoy. And then you get to a moment where it's like, I, I know what they were trying to do with this scene and I don't cotton to it. You know, it's like, I'm, it's, mm-hmm. yeah, like you said, it, it feels almost yeah. kind of invasive to get that, yeah. that that feeling. But also it's like you said there mm-hmm. there can be moments. I mean, just just like in real life, you know, with character development can happen during lovemaking. You know, things can change about a person during right. sex or exactly. revelations can come and to that extent, yeah. 
That's right. I, f- I think I feel very similarly to you on that. Yeah. yeah. It's just whenever I feel like <laughs> I get reactive to it. If I feel like there's an agenda in the movie, mm. like if I feel like there is an ethic, I, I get very, I get annoyed. I get reactive <laughs> to it. If it's just good storytelling and it's how do we tell this story well, I, I'm pretty open to yeah. what is going to tell that best. But I, I, you know, I don't like it if I'm trying to be sold something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I don't think. Uh, di- didacticism is not i mean unless it's all about well actually it it's billy wilder's major rule which is not that much of a revelation but he always said never be boring and that's the thing mm-hmm. you can forgive a movie all kinds of things including its lessons <laughs> if it's not boring yeah that's right yeah yeah that's a good point yeah. too well i think we're hitting time there yeah i think that worked out really nicely this is that was fun yeah I liked having to watch a movie. Hey, there you I just go. don't watch it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not just doing it because I'm bored or I want to just hang yeah. out or something, but to actually have something to sort of look yeah. out for. Like work. Yeah. 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 And I'm glad that you were receptive to this idea. I know it's certainly uh, different from most of the podcast episodes that you do. So hmm. it's fun. Uh, also, in, in closing, if maybe if you could just tell our audience where they can find you and the various things you have on offer right now. So the best place to find me is just on my website, which is my last name. So finlayson-fife.com. And I have there, well, I have a free podcast called Conversations with Dr. Jennifer, which is conversations like this around relationships, sexuality, spirituality, development and then i also have a podcast called room for two which is a double entendre around where i'm working with actual couples and around relationship and sexuality issues and giving the feedback to them on why they're struggling as they are and what they can do about it so so there's those two resources and then i have five online courses that are about um, self and sexual development. And probably people are like, what is that? But but basically, how do you see who you are or what you're creating in your relationships or your sexual relationship that is interfering with a kind of freedom and happiness and aliveness in your marriage and in your life? Because a lot of us orient to safety in a way that keeps the aliveness from growing in our marriages and in our lives. And so it's, you know, it's really about helping people know how to live an integrity-based life, which is the anchor, but allows for the freedom um, and the, and the ease in their lives and relationships. So I teach those five online courses. Terrific. Wonderful. Well, thank you for joining us and for providing those resources. And I'm glad that we were able to get you to enjoy two movies that I agree are, are quite worthwhile. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, really fun. Yeah, we can do it again in a year. <laughs> Absolutely. Something like that. Yeah, <laughs> watch some more movies. <laughs> that would be delightful. Yeah. Well, thank yeah. you very much, Jennifer. Can't tell you how much we appreciate it. We're, I mean, obviously it's been said, we're both huge fans of you and your work, and it's frankly an honor to, to get you on our own show. So that's thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. I've enjoyed it a lot. So 